So last week in looking forward to Easter, we started talking about the idea that there is power in the blood. We wanted to make sure that when we talk about the blood of Jesus, when we sing about the blood of Jesus, when we have our Sunday school classes and our personal devotionals about the blood of Jesus, that it's not just something that we read over and that fades into the background. We want to get and understand and grasp for our entire life what the blood of Jesus means to our salvation, our personal spiritual resurrection, and our discipleship as a follower of Jesus. And so we've just taken last week, we'll take this week and Easter Sunday to focus in on the blood of Jesus. Now, what's amazing about the crucifixion and the resurrection, if you haven't figured this out yet, there are a million things that God was doing through the crucifixion and the resurrection. And we, I, we will never understand that on this side of eternity. We just don't have the capacity. But Scripture is so good to us that a lot of times it pulls back the physical curtain so that we're not just seeing a physical man die on the cross and bleed to death in front of all of creation, but it pulls back and shows us what's going on in the spiritual realm as Jesus laid down his life and shed his blood bearing our sin. And we're going to look at some of those things today. But in order to look forward, we want to go back in time a little bit. So I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis. If you're not familiar with your Bible, this is an easy one because Genesis is right at the front, okay? So just open the front cover. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, just grab one of the blue Bibles in the pews. You can follow along with me. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15, and that's on page 20 in the blue Bible. Now, Genesis is the account of first things. It is where God, uh, through Moses, reveals to us all throughout history the things that God was doing at the beginning and the significance of those things. And what is so astounding to me is that as God tells us what was happening at the beginning, it helps us understand what we should be prioritizing in our life because the beginning of things is so incredibly important in God's economy. How things begin tends to be how they progress until something intervenes. Now, sin intervened in the world. Genesis chapter 3, right? Humanity expands. You've got Cain and Abel. Then, of course, you have the flood, and all of the world is destroyed except for Noah and his family. They go into the ark. They come out, and humanity expands again. And God makes his promises not to destroy the world by flood again. And then humanity expands more and expands again until we come to chapter 12 and this very curious encounter with this man named Abram takes place. And this is what we know about Abram. He was just like everyone else in his culture at the time. He was a pagan idol worshiper who didn't know the one true God, who didn't know that God any more than any other God that he worshiped. But for whatever reason, by his grace of all the people on the face of the planet, the one true God started talking to this man, Abram. And he begins to make promises to Abram of what he's going to do for Abram and what he's going to do for his family and his future and to make a great nation out of him. And all he asks of Abram is, I just want you to stay in relationship with me. I have all these things for you. Let's have a promised relationship together. Now, when we get to chapter 15, God is going to appear to Abram again, and he's going to reaffirm that promised relationship that he extended to him in chapter 12, and he's going to reaffirm some of the things that he's going to do for Abram along the way. So if you've got your scripture, let's look at verse 1. 
Genesis chapter 15, and this is what Moses tells us. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. So if you're used to coming and seeing all kinds of cool fill-in-the-blanks on Sunday morning in your bulletin, you've quickly realized that you've got lots of space to ride around in this morning. That's fine. One of the things I would encourage you to do is keep a running track in this chapter of what God promises Abram. So two things right off the bat. He says, Abram, I will be your shield, and I will be your very great reward. In a climate and in a culture that didn't have nearly the life security that we experience in our world with modern technology and air conditioning and refrigerating our food and health insurance and everything else, Abram needed a promise like that from someone that I will be your shield. And then promising that I will be your reward. Don't all of us want to hear that at some point in our life? We think about the future. We want to think how things are going to end. We want it to turn out good. And we're wondering, how, how's it all going to go down the road? How's it going to be in 20 years or 40 years or 60 years? Am I, going to, am I going to find the right woman? Am I going to marry the right person? What are my kids going to be like? What's it going to be if I get that job? What's it going to be when I retire? Is my health going to be okay? What is, what's life going to be like? God said to Abram, listen, I'll be your reward. Like, like I'll be the end of things for you. I'll be your reward. And maybe for some of us, some of the anxiety we feel this morning could just be lifted in that idea. That instead of looking for everything around us to be our reward and asking the world to provide that for us, why not go to the Lord and say, you know what, I'll claim the same promise that you made Abraham for me, that you will be my reward. You'll be my treasure. You'll be the end of my things, of my life, of my path, of my purpose. You'll be there. Because the Lord is the one thing that will never change, right? I mean, stock market goes up and down, amen? I mean, your job goes up and down. It just depends on how your boss thinks about you on a certain day or what the economy's doing. God doesn't change. So let's make him our reward. Verse 2, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you've, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. If you're saying you're going to be my reward, it, that's amazing, but what's the use of a reward if I can't pass it down to anyone? You see, in that culture, it was even more critical than it is in our culture that you have an heir. Without an heir, without a male heir, you could not pass on all the things that you had amassed. You could not pass on your name. Your name would just, would just disappear from the history of humanity. It would just disappear. So they wanted a male heir above all things, and Abraham's over 90 years old at this point. So he pretty much felt like that ship had sailed, right? That ship's gone. So he says, yeah, it's, it's nice that you would promise me to be my shield and my reward, but I, I have no heirs. So then the word of the Lord comes in verse 4. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. This morning I was coming to work about 5.30, and I was coming, over, coming down pine needles, and it was one of those mornings where all the clouds were gone, and you could just see the stars bright as day. And when I came up over the bridge here, 
man, it was just wide open. It was just beautiful. When I was in India, one of my favorite things was I used to go up on the roof of one of the houses at night because they didn't have the light pollution that we have. Everywhere, we've got street lights everywhere. We've got businesses everywhere. They had no light pollution. So I could go up there and I could see so many more stars than I would see here because they just don't have the light pollution. Not only that, but being in the southern hemisphere, I got to see different stars than we see here. I got to see the Southern Cross. I got to see things that I just, I'd never seen in my lifetime outside of a book. And that's what God did to Abraham. He, he took him outside that night. And he said, just look around. You see all the stars? I will make your descendants more than all of these. I dare you to try to count them. Go ahead, try. Your, your descendants will be greater than these. They're a promise, right? I'll, I'll give you children. I'll give you heirs. And then look at verse 6. Abraham believed God, believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Would you take your pen and underline verse 6? Because this is what you'll find. This is a key verse in all of the Old Testament. It plays out in the New Testament again and again. Paul talks about it. James talks about it. It's all over the New Testament. It's one of the ideas that becomes the bedrock for our salvation, that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. And those writers in the New Testament look back on this encounter where God makes promises to Abraham, and it says, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Meaning, when God said it, Abraham said, I don't understand it. You say it, you're trustworthy. I'm going to act as if my life depends on it. He believed God. And God said, just that belief, that belief in me, that trust in me, I will credit to you as righteousness. You see, we tend to focus on what we do as righteousness, and there is an element of that. We're called to be holy and to do righteous things, but what God is looking for out of his followers is faith, people who will believe him and trust him. When it doesn't make sense, if God says it, we will believe it. When we do that, God says, that is righteousness. That's why in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says this, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Why? Because God is a God who looks for faith trust belief when he says it i believe it just like our father abraham verse 7 he also said to him i'm the lord who brought you out of ur of the chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it but abraham said sovereign lord how can i know that i'll gain possession of it so now it's not just i'm going to be your shield and I'm going to be your reward, and I'm going to give you descendants. Now, he says, and I'm going to give you land. And he says, in fact, the land you're in right now, I'm going to give it to you. And he says, how, how can I be sure that I'm going to take possession of it? And look what happens. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these things to him, and he cut them in two, and he arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Does that sound a strange thing for God to ask Abram to do, to verify that he's going to have this land? It should sound strange to you because if you encounter people in this day and age that are cutting animals in half, you need to call the cops. 
I mean, you don't want that person for your neighbor, okay? I'm just telling you, all right? But in this culture, there is something going on that we just don't understand, and this was actually a pretty commonplace thing in this culture. There was a significance to it. It was actually a way in which that they made agreements together. Two people would make agreements together. It was a way in which two people would make promises, and they would ratify those promises. So I'm going to see if I can demonstrate this for you today, okay? So I'm going to get my buddy Elijah to come up and help me out. Um, if you haven't met Elijah yet, this is Elijah Johnson. Elijah is one of our brand new members here at Trinity. Um, he is uh, the third oldest of 13 kids. The third oldest of 13. And he's a preacher's kid, so he's used to being up on stage with a pastor and being asked to do really crazy things. So um, Elijah's going to help me out this morning, and I want to see if we can walk through the ceremony here. So uh, let's get some animals that we can cut in half, Elijah, okay? So I've got these for you here, okay? And um, you can just put that one there, all right? And I'm going to put this one here. I think it's your Clifford, the red dog, uh, Knox. So thank you for that. Appreciate that. Um, and uh, we still we need a heifer, too. we got to have a heifer. So let me see what I can, uh, what I can cook up back here. Yeah, I think this will work. That'll be good. All right, so um, we'll take the heifer, and we'll put the heifer uh, right there. Just pretend that's not a horn. That's, uh, that's a heifer, okay? And uh, I'm not going to cut the animals in half because my children would never forgive me. That would be a hard afternoon at the Walton House. But um, you can just use your imagination that now we have cut the animals in half, okay? And when uh, you cut the animals in half, one of the things that they would do is they would dig a trench. So they dig this long trench, okay? Then they would cut the animals in half, and they would take a half of the animal, and they would put one half on each side of the trench. And when you cut an animal in half, what comes out of the animal? Blood, lots of blood. And it would flow down into the trench. Are you following me so far? Okay. Now Elijah's going to go on that side of the trench over there by our ram over there. It's been cut in half. The blood has flown down into the trench. And this is what they would do. One person would stand on one side of the trench. The other person would stand on the other side of the trench. And they would make promises to each other about what they were going to do in the contract. Okay? So, Elijah, you're promising me you're going to build me a house. And I'm promising you that I'm going to give you 200 goats to build my house. Okay? So, this is what Elijah would do. He would make his promise. Okay, I accept the house. And I'm going to make Elijah a promise. Elijah, I'm going to give you 200 goats if you build my house. Now... After we've stated the terms of our, of our promise, okay, then we walk through the trench, pass each other. He goes to the other place, and I go here. And what do we have to walk through in order to do that? Like at least like ankle deep of blood and guts and carrying on, right? Now, that sounds really strange, doesn't it? But all of this is symbolic. It's symbolic of what happens if Elijah or me break the agreement. What we're actually saying is this. You break the agreement, I can cut you in half like I just cut this unicorn heifer, the ram, the goat. I can cut you in half, and I can walk in your blood. That's pretty serious, don't you say? But that's how... They would make these serious covenants back then. Okay? So all of that is symbolic 
on what takes place. Thanks, Elijah. I appreciate that. Give Elijah a round of applause there. Appreciate that. So who are the two parts of this covenant in what we're reading in Genesis? You've got God and you've got Abram. And he says, Abram, I want you to go get some animals. I want you to cut them in half for me. Do you think that Abram understood what God was doing? He absolutely understood what God was doing. He probably even cut a covenant. And by the way, it was not called making a covenant. It was called cutting a covenant. You know why it's called cutting a covenant? Because you cut things in half. He absolutely knew what God was doing. He was cutting a covenant with Abram. He understood. And by the way, what were the things that God had promised Abram to do? I mean, you got them in your notes. You were writing these down, right? Right? What were the four things he promised Abram? I'll be your shield. I'll be your reward. I'll give you kids. And I'll give you land. What's Abraham promise? I just, I'll, I'll sign up. I mean, you, you're going to be my reward. You're going to give me kids. You give me, I, I'm here. Let's do it. Now look at what happens. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, when I have a vision the Lord puts me to sleep, I don't want to hear a promise that my ancestors are going to end up in slavery for 400 years. But that's what God had in planned for the Israelites. That all unfolds, by the way, in the book of Exodus, right? And that lasts for 400 years until Moses comes along and delivers Israel out of bondage in Egypt. But God promised that way back to Abram. And then says, but as for you, you will rest in peace with your families and your descendants. You'll never see that. Verse 17, and you've got to get this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephavites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. I'm giving you all of it. He cut a covenant with Abram. When does Abram walk through the blood? He doesn't. In fact, what does God do? He puts Abram to sleep. God makes all the promises. He invites him in. He makes all the promises. And then he commits to all the responsibility of the covenant. Are you following me? Now I want you to turn to the right to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. 
Luke is the account of Jesus' life and ministry, and by chapter 23, we've gotten to the crucifixion. So Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has been beaten 39 times with a whip. Jesus has been made to carry his cross to Golgotha. Jesus has been stripped naked. Jesus has been nailed to the cross. And now he's on display. And pick up in verse 44 in Luke chapter 23. It was now about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Do you remember last week when we talked about how Old Testament sacrifice took place? That in Old Testament times that they had created this earthly structure called the tabernacle. This series of tents that were divided out into smaller rooms until you get to the smallest room, which contained the Ark of the Covenant, right? The gold box that represented the physical presence of God in the world. He literally spiritually dwelt on top of that box. And once a year, once a year, the high priest would take blood and he was the only one that could walk into the Holy of Holies. He's the only one and could dump that blood onto the covering to make covering for Israel's sin for one year. Remember, it didn't cleanse things. You remember that? All it did was cover. It kept them in right relationship for one year until a better sacrifice came along. And who was the better sacrifice than the lambs and the goats? Who was the better sacrifice? Jesus. So God in his grace allowed all those sacrifices to suffice until Jesus' death on the cross. We talked about that. And one of the things we talked about is no one was allowed to enter into that holy place. Now, the tabernacle changed after time. After David became king and he established Jerusalem, later his son Solomon built a beautiful temple. And within that temple, they separated out an inner room just like the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant would stay and it was called the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. You've probably heard it that way before. After a couple hundred years, a nation destroyed that temple, burned it to the ground and they rebuilt it a couple hundred years later. And when Jesus comes along in his time, he's dealing with a second temple. But that second temple had the same Holy of Holies in it. It had the same gold box. It had the same Ark of the Covenant. And in the same way, only one time a year could one high priest go into the Holy of Holies and pour blood on the Ark to cover people's sin until one thing happened. Until the day of the crucifixion. When Jesus died on the cross and the curtain that closed off the Holy of Holies was torn in two. Now before you start thinking this is the curtain that you have hung in your dining room, this is not the curtain you have hung in your dining room. The curtain that closed off the Holy of Holies was 60 feet high. That's six stories. It was 30 feet wide. On top of that, 
It was four inches thick, which is from here to about here. It was that thick. They had 82 women whose full-time job was to make one curtain, and they got to make two a year. That's how long it took. And when they made a new one, it took 300 priests. It was so heavy. It took 300 priests to haul that curtain up into place and to replace it. It's not your dining room curtain. It's a serious curtain. Man is not going to tear that curtain. You go get all your boys. You, all, you and all your boys are not tearing that curtain. In fact, Matthew says something really interesting. When Matthew's telling this story, and he's telling about the curtain being torn in two, he says that the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, which means a man didn't tear it in the first place. Who tore it? God tore it. Why did he tear it? Why did he tear it? Well, let's talk about that. Hebrews chapter 10. We looked at Hebrews 9 last week. Let's look at Hebrews 10. Because just like last week, remember we said there's a physical thing that's happening at the crucifixion. Jesus' death. But there are a thousand spiritual things that are happening, most of which we'll never understand. But there's one we do understand. It's right here in Hebrews 10. Listen to this. Which is stick with me in this. Down to verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. In verse 20 where it says new, do you see that in your translation? That word is not the common word for new. It's only used one time in all of the Bible. New, this word. And what it actually means is a fresh sacrifice. The literal translation is a fresh sacrifice. Now, us trying to water down some of the gruesomeness of sacrifice, we say a new sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says a fresh sacrifice. Not just a fresh sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. Both a fresh sacrifice that was also living and look at what it says. A way was made for us, open for us through the curtain that is his body. So the writer of Hebrews is saying when that curtain was torn from top to bottom, spiritually, it was the body of Jesus torn top to bottom for us. And listen to what he says. A new way has been opened to us through the curtain. Not around the curtain. Through the curtain. How do you and I now gain access to God? How do you and I enter the Holy of Holies? Through the torn body of Jesus Christ. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Sound familiar? Torn bodies. Shed blood. A promise made. And if the promise is broken, what did you have the right to do? Trample on the blood of the one who broke the covenant. 
God put Abram to sleep. You know why? Because God was making a covenant that was a lot more than land and a shield and descendants. He was making a promise of an unbroken relationship for all of eternity with his people. Abraham had no idea what was happening. And God said, no, go to sleep. I'm not going to let you walk through the blood because you can't bear the price of the covenant. And when Abram and his descendants and you and me broke the covenant, who was cut in half? Jesus. Whose blood was shed? Jesus. Whose blood was trampled? It was Jesus. So I want to read Hebrews 10 again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. You're not faithful. Abraham was not faithful. Not one of his descendants was ever faithful until Jesus. But he who promised is faithful. It was his blood that was trampled for you. For you. Write this verse down. Micah. Chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. This is what Micah saw before the birth of Jesus. This is what he saw as a prophet. He said this, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not stay angry forever. Did you get that? He does not stay angry forever, but delights to show mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will trample our sin underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Listen, my God is the God who trampled my sin under his foot and hurled it into the depths of the sea. If you've never heard anyone tell you that your God did that for you, let me be the first. I don't know what your life has been. I know what my life's been, and I know what Jesus has done for me. Whatever your life has been, Jesus will do that for you. He will trample your sins underfoot and hurl them into the depths of the sea. What's that a picture of? He will never remember them again. He will separate you from your sins. 
And what does he say? He will rejoice over us. He will bring us in. He will draw us near. This morning, we can draw near to him. Near to him. So what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Wait. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not the good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. One more. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You can stand for this part. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I'll ever know. The blood of Jesus. to give you a chance to respond to what you've heard. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away your sins. Stop trying to be better. Stop trying to be pure. Only the blood of Jesus can do that for you. But you can be started today. Let's respond to the Lord.